Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Tuesday, August 11th, 2015. So we're going to do a little fact-checking at the end of the first hour today on uh, Hillsong regarding their famous Broadway gay couple, what they knew when they knew it kind of thing. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up God's Word and compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose sermons we need to be downloading, and whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. And yeah, I did say instead of. So uh, what we're going to be doing today, we're going to have to get right to it. We have a lot of ground to start, uh, not to start, a lot of ground to cover on today's episode of fighting for the faith don't you hate it when like you know you have the words in your head and you reach into your mind and you grab like the wrong word (laughs) getting old getting old creeping decrepitude has crept upon me so we are going to begin today we're going to start off with a prophetic holy orders network information exchange syndicate update with uh, jennifer leclerc's uh, latest video on her um youtube channel and jennifer leclerc is the editor of charisma magazine and uh, this is some practical stuff for you out there if you've ever been wondering how do you recognize a spirit of python attack yeah um i mean i've been wondering about that for at least two decades but uh, d- never worry jennifer leclerc has received a direct prophetic download from god the holy spirit in order to give you this practical advice on how to recognize a spirit of python attack <laughs> just like yeah, okay. And then we're going to switch gears. We're going to do an atheist update, although this is a little bit weird. There's a story coming out of Canada, and this is found at the nationalpost.com website, that there is an atheist minister in the United Church of Canada, and she's being, well, apparently defrocked. I mean, at least that's what the United Church of Canada is trying to do with her. And uh, and the headline reads, Unprecedented United Church Probe Could Lead to Removal of a Non-Believing Toronto Minister. So we got strike number one. This is a female pastrix. Strike number two, 
you know, as if scripture doesn't already forbid a woman from being a pastrix. But strike number two is that she's an atheist. And so they're trying to get rid of her. And the National Post actually did a little bit of an interview with her and let her speak. Her name is Retta, it's a Reverend Greta Vosper. Reverend Greta Vosper. And some of the things that she says, uh, although she's an atheist, and she's, number one, she should not be a pastrix because God's word forbids that. Number two, uh, yeah, you have to actually be a, a Christian in order to be a pastor in Jesus' church. You know, kind of like, you know, belief is like mandatory kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> it's going to be like, you know, somebody who is, you know, they're part of the humane society and, and they are in favor of like, you know, mutilating animals and torturing them. I mean, being part of the humane society kind of assumes that you want, to, you know, animals to be treated kindly. But uh, the Reverend Greta Vosper doesn't even believe in God, and yet she's a, a ministrix in, uh, at West Hill United Church. And uh, so we'll listen to her, and she makes some interesting points worth passing along. Then we're going to switch gears. We've got a Perry Noble update. Uh, they've been recently doing you know, the I Love Church Sunday. This is an annual event apparently over at uh, New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina. And uh, Perry Noble was talking about, well, being selfish. Mm, but see, when you're talking about I Love My Church Sunday, well, what's the important message to reinforce regarding selfishness? Yeah, it has to do with uh, how you do church. So we'll listen to that, and then we'll do some fact-checking, end of hour number one, uh, regarding when uh, Hillsong knew what they knew regarding uh, their famous gay couple. And we might even read uh, from a recent social media statement made by uh, one of the um, members of that uh, couple, Josh Canfield. Uh, he sent out a Twitter tweet, and uh, it ended up putting a long post on Twit Longer. And what he says reveals that he really has no clue that he's an impenitent sinner. And, you know, yeah, since we're supposed to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, remaining in impenitent sin is, doesn't make you a Christian. It makes you a candidate for church discipline. But apparently they're still singing in the choir, but just not in leadership, you know, out there at uh, Hillsong, New York City. So we'll take a look at that. And then in hour number two, we're going to head to a church and listen to a sermon we've, you know, you know, a church we've never reviewed a sermon for or a pastor that we've never heard before. And uh, I'll give you the details about that in hour number two. So you're going to have to buckle up and uh, put your helmet, tinfoil pyramid hat if you have one. And uh, we've got to get right to it today because of how much ground we've got to cover. And since we're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, that requires us to do this. At an English fair, one evening I was there when I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are, standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist. That's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Roll a bowl a ball, roll a bowl a ball, singing roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. That's right. 
That's our update music for the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate, of uh, which uh, Jennifer LeClaire, the editor of Charisma Magazine, I believe she's one of the founding members of that particular uh, syndicate. And so we're going to be listening to her latest video from her YouTube channel entitled How to Recognize a Spirit of Python Attack. I, I know... There are a lot of you out there that have been just dying to figure out just practical information as to how you can identify a spirit of Python attack. And luckily, Jennifer LeClaire gets direct downloads from God the Holy Spirit. So here's Jennifer LeClaire, editor of Charisma Magazine, to explain this practical information to us. Here we go. Hi, it's Jennifer LeClaire. I'm here with you in Windy South Florida Beach, actually in Hollandale Beach. And I want to talk to you today about something the Holy Spirit showed me a while ago. I was So this is direct revelation from God the Holy Spirit. You need to add this to the back of your Bible. Preparing to go on Sid Roth's show, It's Supernatural. And I was studying the message. I was presenting about unbelief and what I call doubtaholism. And I talk about doubt Doubtaholism. Yeah, you know I wonder if they have a twelve step program for that in my book, Faith Magnified. It's 13 steps to overcome the doubt that has crept into your heart. But while I was studying and while I was preparing uh, for the uh, broadcast with Sid, I uh, got a download from the Holy Spirit that was really powerful. And yeah, super powerful. You need to write this down uh, like, you know, if you have a Bible. Yeah, you're going to need one of those paper ones uh, because you got to, like, open up to, like, the back, you know, like, right after the book of Maps. You know how, like... You you have open up the back cover. There's like white space. Yeah, you just write in um, the Epistle of Jennifer LeClaire, and uh, you know write chapter one, verse one. This is a direct download from God, the Holy Spirit. Get ready to write. Here we go. He said to me, I mean, this is profound. So listen. Okay. Listen. He said that the battle is in the mind. Yeah. But the war is in your heart. Yeah. Consider my mind blown. Yeah. Wow. I'll never be the same after hearing that. I'm going to say that again. The no, please don't. ...is in your mind, but the war is for your heart. And that is a really profound statement because think about... Yeah, are you sure that you got that from God, the Holy Spirit, and not from a fortune cookie? I, you know, it, you know just saying... A minute. The battle is in your mind, right? I mean, the enemy comes with missives directed at your mind. The enemy comes with lies. He plants seeds of doubt in your mind. See, because we don't believe with our mind, right? We yeah, well, see, here's the issue is by claiming this is a direct revelation from God, the Holy Spirit. I have to assume that this um, this direct revelation that you received could, in fact, be an, an attack and a missive of the devil designed to you know attack my mind and my heart and cause me to not actually believe sound biblical doctrine and to somehow put you on a pedestal and think that you're somebody super special and really holy because you're receiving direct revelation from God. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've had enough exposure to you that I know that you're not super holy and you know somebody super special that receives direct revelation from God. Instead, I've learned uh, through biblical discernment and comparing the messages that you say to the written word of God to learn that you're somebody who does not hold a sound biblical doctrine and you teach false doctrine and twist God's word. Therefore, I know for a fact you're not actually hearing from God the Holy Spirit. So the weird part is, is that here in this how-to video that where you claim direct revelation from God the Holy Spirit about how to how to recognize a spirit of Python attack, 
I think this is a prime example of, you know, a Spirit of Python attack occurring right now via what you're saying in this video. Isn't that weird? I just, the irony, you know? our heart we agree with the word with our mind and that's a great start but the word of god has to get down in our heart and come out of our mouths through prayer uh, through confession in order for us to see the word of god come to pass in our life in most cases of course god can do what he wants but i'm talking about praying the word of god i'm talking about believing and standing on the word of god unto breakthrough unfortunately you're not helping me understand god's word any clearer because you're claiming the words that you're speaking are actually the word of god yeah, again, this is a prime example of a spirit of Python attack. Battle is in the mind, but the war is for your heart. The devil roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be, I don't want to put up with the enemy stealing, killing, and destroying the blessings of God in my life. That's what the devil comes to do. But Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly to the full till it over. Yeah, and the weird part is you're quoting John 10, 10 there. And John 10 is actually Jesus warning us about false teachers. Yeah, more on that in a future episode of Fighting for the Faith. Stay tuned. You know, we'll be playing in the weeks ahead a, a sermon from Phil Johnson. Uh, on this exact text, and that's kind of the irony is is that the, you know the you know I came that they might have it life and have it to the full. Yeah, that's in the context of Jesus warning us about false teachers like Jennifer Leclaire. Again, strange irony here. And I don't know about you, uh, tap your screen twice if you want to live in the abundant blessings of God, if you want to live in the abundance, in the overflow. Yeah, the fact that you're talking like this proves you didn't hear from God the Holy Spirit. I don't want to live in defeat. I want to walk in victory. I want everything Jesus gave me. I want, I want, you sound like Veruca Salt from uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I want it now, Daddy. God on that cross, everything he provided for me. So the battle is in the mind, but the war is for your heart. Yeah, you keep saying that as if that's the word of God and it isn't. See, the Bible talks about believing with your heart. Since we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth. That's how we got saved. Yeah, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Fill in the rest of the sentence, please. We believed in our heart and we confessed with our mouth. And that's how we get many other things. We believe with our heart. We pray with our mouth. We say with so our So that's how we get things is by believing and praying and saying, you know, and then we, you know, God releases blessings to us. This is false doctrine. This is a spirit of Python attack. And we don't always get it immediately. That's where the war is. You know, we're fighting the good fight of faith. Paul told his son Timothy Timothy, to fight the good fight of faith. And that's the weird part because, uh, well, the Apostle Paul warned us about people like you. Right. He said, fight the good fight of faith. What is that good fight of faith? Well, I submit to you that it's a good fight because we win, first of all. But it's a fight of faith to believe God's word. So the battle. Yeah, if you believed God's word, you wouldn't be saying this nonsense is in the mind but the war is for your heart the war is for your heart it's for your heart if if the enemy can plant seeds of doubt in your soul and they get down into your heart then you won't be able to pray in faith you'll have doubt it's oh no you won't be able to pray in faith and you'll have doubt and then you won't be able to have those super abundant blessings you know from god that god the holy spirit wants to give to you and you know it's just terrible this is a terrible tragedy we're being attacked by the spirit of python we continue warfare 101 at some level but it was a profound way the holy spirit shared it with me 
If you hear all that background noise, I'm outside here on the beach, and there are uh, planes flying overhead with banners, and there are uh, jet skis uh, going off in the uh, in the intercoastal. So that's what you're hearing. But let me leave you with this thought. The, the, the battle's in the mind, but the war is for the heart. The Word of God tells us to guard our hearts with all diligence because out of it— Yeah, and the Word of God tells us to, you know, when somebody claims to be receiving direct revelation from God, a.k.a. prophecy, that we're to test the spirits, not just believe them. And uh, over and again, we've demonstrated through testing by comparing what she says to the Word of God that— she ain't no prophetess, and she ain't hearing from God the Holy Spirit. That is faux show. All right, moving along. We're going to do something a little bit different here today, and uh, we have an atheist update. And we actually do have atheist update music. It's from Steve Martin, and it's entitled Atheists, Atheists Don't Have No Songs. Here we go. You know, religious people have such beautiful music and art, and atheists really have nothing. (laughs) Until now. (laughs) Little tune called, Atheists Don't Have No Songs. Christians have, Christians have their hymns and pages, hymns and pages, Havanagilas for the Jews, for the Jews, Baptists have the rock of ages, rock of ages, atheists just sing the blues. Romantics play, romantics play, Claire de Lune, Claire de Lune, born again, sing he is risen. But no one ever wrote a tune, wrote a tune for godless existentialism. For atheists, there's no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith in their songs. They have a rule: the he is always lowercase. Yeah, there we go. Atheists don't have no songs. Yeah, you can find that on Steve Martin's. A uh, rare bird alert album. Yeah, atheists don't have no songs. So uh, we're, what we're going to be listening to here, uh, the headline from the National Post reads, Unprecedented United Church Probe Could Lead to Removal of Non-Believing Toronto Minister. Yeah, I, I find it funny that the uh, mainstream liberal media there up in Canada is just in a kerfuffle over this. Can you believe they're going to get rid of an atheist pastor? It's unprecedented. This has never been heard of. Yeah, actually, what should have never been heard of is uh, somebody being an atheist and then becoming a pastor. And then because, of course, she's a woman, God's word forbids her from being a pastor, too. So we've kind of got like the two strikes against her here. But uh, here is the reverend, and I really say that with air quotes, the reverend uh, Greta Vosper, and why she should continue to be the uh, pastrix of West Hill United Church up in Canada. Here we go. It does seem counterintuitive if the purpose of the leader is to dispense uh, beliefs and to teach belief and to make sure that people are in accordance with belief. But if- mm, Okay, so apparently it seems counterintuitive for her as an atheist to be a pastrix. Uh, if the purpose is, of course, to dispense belief. Right, yeah. 
<laughs> in order to make a disciple of Jesus, you have to actually believe that Jesus is God in human flesh and uh, died and rose again for our sins, you know, things like that. So, okay, so it's counterintuitive, right? Continue, Greta. The purpose of the leader is to inspire, to help people create meaningful lives, to work toward transformation in relationships, then it doesn't matter. Right. So if the purpose of the leader, a.k.a. Pastrix, is to inspire people to lead better lives and have transforming relationships, it doesn't matter if the pastor believes in God or not. And here is the bizarre irony. She's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, she's right. If if the if the reason why your pastor believes he exists is is in order to inspire people to have transformed lives and to make their lives better, then it doesn't matter if he's a believer. Then does he? In fact, it doesn't matter if God's word is actually the word of God. As long as you can, you know, strip mine it for inspiring pithy statements that'll help people, you know, spur them on to life transformation. You know, it doesn't matter if the person's a you know a believer, unbeliever, atheist or not. And she's got a point. But see, the the thing is, is that Jesus said, "Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that I've commanded." Yeah. In other words, uh, their doctrine is a vital part of it. This is why the Apostle Paul says to, T- to Titus, you know, the the bishop of uh, Crete, he says to the to him. You know, to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Right. So, yeah, we've got uh, some interesting things going on here. Again, she has a valid point. And I would say, well, if your church is of the type that believes that they're all about inspiring people rather than making disciples of Jesus and teaching sound doctrine, then it doesn't matter if you're an atheist or not. Strange that I'm finding myself agreeing with her. This work in this community could have been led by someone who was a traditional believer, and we could have ended up in exactly the same place. I just happened to not be a theistic believer, and many... Uh She just happens to not be a theistic believer, and she's a pastrix. Many, many mainline denominations have been focusing on how you live and not on beliefs for a very long time. Yeah, she's right about that. Many mainline denominations have been focusing on how you live, liberal, by the way, uh, how you live, not on belief. This is most certainly true. I think one of the ways in which you can identify a liberal congregation is whether or not they're only teaching lifestyle and not teaching doctrine. Yeah, and those... Churches out there, oh, we're conservative, but they never actually teach doctrine. They only teach, you know, how to live. Yeah, they're making a bunch of liberals, even though the pastor will say, well, I believe those doctrines. Well, then why don't you ever teach them? You have social justice movements. You have climate change movements. You have sexuality movements. They're all taking place within liberal Christian denominations, and they're all very, very important. I think that if we are going to continue to use language which suggests that we get our moral authority from a supernatural source. Any group that says that can trump any humanistic uh, endeavor and the, the understanding of something that comes out of the pursuit of humanistic values, they can trump that with a divine being. So my argument... Yeah, of course you can. And see, that's kind of the thing. And you, she's sitting there, you know, touting humanistic values as if somehow humans can somehow who don't even believe in god can come up with some some real actual category of right and wrong good or evil they can't 
uh, that those just really just degenerate down to human opinions and uh, what's in vogue with you know, 50.1% of the population at any given time, you know, hey, you know, we've decided, you know, that, uh, you know, murder, you know, that's so old fashioned, and we're sick and tired of actually, you know, punishing people for killing other people. There's just some people that just need killing. And so we've decided, you know, now that we've reached 50.1% of the population no longer believes that murder is wrong or evil, that we're just going to make it legal. Yeah. (laughs) It's... Yeah, but see, the thing is, the Christian comes along and says, no, God has revealed, thou shalt not murder. It's a commandment. All of our morals are based upon God's moral law, which reflect his character. So, uh, yeah, but she's right about the fact that, uh, you know, if you believe in a, in, a, in a God, you can trump theistic, or I mean, sorry, humanistic values. I would say humanistic values are not grounded in anything certain. They're uh, grounded on nothing but shifting sand. Was... Let's try to find other language to talk about this so that we aren't constantly giving that tool to whatever group may want to use it, religious, political, or otherwise. We stay doing this work and we keep doing it in a denomination because we believe that denomination has a responsibility to Christianity, to uh, the human community, to be honest about what the liberal tradition has discovered. and. What the liberal tradition has discovered, no, it's what the liberal tradition has abandoned and claimed to have discovered, which is really nothing at all. The cost of that is that we are no longer welcome within that denomination, then it will be because that denomination has defined us out of it, not that we have defined ourselves out of it. Because uh, I see, you know, it's so liberal denomination now has to make a... Make a decision. Are we going to allow atheist pastors? I mean, we allow same-sex, impenitent pastors, and women pastrixes. Why not atheists, too? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. So she's making a very interesting point, and that is is that – you know, if they end up it, it chain, you know, basically throwing her out, her claim is it's because they've defined her out, but that she was never, by definition, when she was brought in, ruled out to begin with. And I think she has a valid point because I think liberalism is nothing more than unbelief masquerading as pious belief. But it, there's no true piety or belief to it at all. It's it's marked by rank agnosticism or you know, skepticism when it comes to what God's word says, what he's revealed. And uh, they don't preach the gospel and repentance and the forgiveness of sins and sound doctrine. They just teach people how to, you know, it's kind of a country club. We come together and we do good things to, you know, help the human community. And we feel better about ourselves as a result of it. But uh, they don't actually make disciples of Jesus Christ. Fascinating thing there. So, yeah. So do you think that atheists uh, should be forbidden from being pastrixes? <laughs> oh, you, you're so narrow-minded. How dare you? Yeah. Well, yeah, I would say that uh, belief in Jesus Christ uh, as the uh, Son of God, uh, one true God in human flesh, uh, died for our sins and risen again on the third day for our justification would be kind of like the assumed you know thing without that you're not even a christian so without being a christian you couldn't be a pastor but she's right liberal the liberal denominations haven't made a bone about that in a long time and now all of a sudden an atheist shows up in the ranks and they're going <gasps> this is terrible we got to do something about this when in reality they're all really atheists in you know unbelievers if you think about it all right we're up on our first break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions 
of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackandfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fire Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at fire Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a Perry Noble update and a Hillsong fact-checking thing that we're going to be doing. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Gentlemen, we have two basic suggestions for the design of this megachurch, and I thought it best that the architects themselves came in to explain the advantages of both designs. That must be the first architect now. Ah, yes, this is Mr. Wapcat of Finkel, Dewey, and Grime. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, yes, the design I've devised for the new worship center has all the aesthetic beauty of the Crystal Cathedral with all the advantages of modern technology. Um, the congregants step through these wide double doors here are carried along the corridor on a conveyor belt in extreme comfort past the youth worship basement, the adult worship rock and roll arena, the monster truck smashatorium, and into the Sarlacc pit. The last 20 feet of the corridor are heavily soundproofed. The congregants slide down these chutes here into the open mouth. Excuse me. Did you say Sarlacc Pit? Um, Sarlacc Pit, yes. Uh, are, are you proposing to digest our congregants over a thousand years? Does that not fit in with your plans? No, it does not. We wanted a simple megachurch, not a death trap. Ah, I see. I hadn't correctly divined your attitude towards the congregants. Uh-huh. You see, I mainly design occultist cathedrals. Yes, pity. Mind you, this is a real butte, not your average satanic mosque with people's beating hearts being ripped out of their chest or burning sulfur pits and convincing passers-by with burnt eyebrows. I mean... My life has been building up to this. Yes, and well done. But we did want a megachurch and not a temple of doom. Well, may I ask you to reconsider? I mean, you've no idea how modern and relevant this place can be. Think, think of the tourist trip. No, no, it's not going to work for us. By the way, um, why the Sarlacc pit? Well, it's a pretty standard feature in all of my projects. You see, if you're going to preach heresy, you might as well not even bother waiting. Just send them to the afterlife quickly is what I've always said. You mean heaven. <laughs> Thank you. You may leave now. Hypocritical puss buckets. My apologies, gentlemen. The next architect is Miss Parsons of Cromwell and Hague. Good afternoon, gentlemen. As you may notice from my scale model, the design takes us back to our ancestral Christian roots. Observe the white bell tower, the baptismal font, the organ at the back of the Stop. church, and... 
I beg your pardon. You've completely missed the whole point of the mega church. Uh, you've made something irrelevant. How is the seeker-driven church going to attract prospective customers? I, I mean, uh, congregants. Isn't church about worshiping Jesus Christ and hearing and learning his word? Jesus has got nothing to do with this. We need tithers, not decrepit old people clinging to their crack leather Bibles and going on and on about how the music's too loud and how the preacher doesn't read enough scripture, complaining about the coffee shop in the main foyer and how they charge too much for a double chocolate spring hazelnut latte. But they still pay the fourteen ninety nine for the latte because the water in the drinking fountain tastes like arsenic. <clears throat> That's enough, Miss Parsons. The answer is no. Very well, gentlemen. Have a good day. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor, Pastrix, is only teaching about lifestyle and never teaching doctrine. I mean, they might as well be an atheist. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us, of course, if you would like to spend 
specify the amount that you would like to contribute. You do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota. Zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support because we truly, truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a Perry Noble update. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. That's right. Now, it doesn't really matter what Perry Noble says, as long as he does it with a flare. We're going to be listening to a portion of the sermon recently delivered entitled, I Love My Church. It's not about me. Are you ready to pack your bags? You're going on a guilt trip because we're going to talk about how selfish you are. And of course, when a seeker-driven vision casting leader talks about selfishness in the context of loving your church... It can mean only one thing. Here's Perry Noble to explain. I figured the best way to start out tonight is with a confession. Now, you guys love it when I confess. Um, When I confess sin about me because you go, oh, man, I'm not that jacked up. My pastor's crazy. I'm crazy. Um, And so I just wanted to start off with a confession. Church is a safe place. It should be a place where we're able to confess, right? So I just want to confess something to you. But my confession tonight is actually going to be an invitation. Because when I confess this about me, it might be true about you as well. And so when I confess it, I'm going to confess what's true about me. And then if it's true about you, I'm going to count to three, and I just want you to say back to me, me too. It's very simple. It's my confession and my invitation for you to make the confession with me when I count to three. So this is a, he's going to begin with a confession of sins of sorts. The thing is, when you're confessing a sin like this, you need to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. But see, this is manipulation. He wants everybody to agree with him that, you know, well, he's going to say that he's selfish and that everyone's going to say me too. And, well, the solution to this is to not be selfish, but watch where he steers this. It'll take a little bit of time because he's building up, you know. I'm a very selfish person. One, two, three. Awesome. I knew, I knew there were a lot of us here tonight. Some of you, some of you didn't say me too, and you're selfish because you're not playing right now. And so I, I, I'm just... I just wanted to point out that all of us are selfish. I like, I like it when things go my way. I like it when things go the way I had it planned out. I love it when it's all about me. I'm a selfish person. I never will forget riding down the road one day. Um, and I like all kinds of music. I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't just stay with one genre. I just kind of get in moods. And- so now here comes the personal anecdote to explain just how selfish he is. And, you know, and then, you know, and then again, he's going to steer this in a weird direction. In whatever mood I'm in. So sometimes I'm in the mood for just some, something with a beat. And sometimes I'm in the mood for old school country. And when I say old school country, I'm talking Merle Haggard. And there's like four people know who Merle was. But like it's And so I'm all in between. And so I remember riding down the road one day in my car. By the way, it was my car. Uh, And and I don't know if you have a car. Your car is the car that you pay for. That's your car. Because some of you are 30 and you're still driving your parents' car. And it's not your car. It's your parents' car because they paid for the car. But I was driving my car because I paid for my car. And I I was riding down the road. I was listening. I forgot what I was listening to. But I'm into this song. And my buddy reaches over and changes the radio dial. See, there's a rule in the South. You don't touch a man's woman, 
You don't touch a man's remote control. You don't touch a man's radio dial. Um, and so I pushed him out of my car and left him on the side of the road because I'm, I'm selfish. I don't like it when people take things or do... Ladies, you're selfish too. Don't act like you don't struggle with selfishness. Ladies, let me ask you this question. Have you ever seen like a friend or a roommate or a sister or your daughter and you're like, oh my gosh, that's a really, really cute outfit she's got on. And as she gets closer, you realize it's so cute. And then all of a sudden she gets closer and you realize the reason you thought it was so cute is because it's actually your outfit. And she went into your closet without your permission and wore it. Ladies, is that okay no you know why because you're selfish you got other outfits you know there's this thing called stealing yeah i've never had a guy go into my closet and grab something that belonged to me and then put it on and you know wear it yeah awkward that's that I mean that's just theft right there i don't care who you are yes you just got mad about it right i'm selfish when it comes to dessert to dessert with me and my wife lucretia when we go out for dessert and we'll always split a dessert but it's not 50 50 it's 60 40 because i'm bigger than her therefore i require more calories because after all it's all about me and so i draw an imaginary line i actually did a real line one time and that didn't work it's not great marriage advice but i and if she goes over that line i get incredibly frustrated because i want for things to be all about me. All of us wrestled with this. And listen to this. Nobody had to teach us to be this way. We were just born with it. Anybody have to ever teach their kid to be selfish? Right. Come come here. Come here. You're sharing way too much. You, every time the ball, you, you, you got to quit sharing. Like nobody does that. The only problem with that is because I'm, I'm desperately trying to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. I, I, I really want to do that. Okay, so you know, the, the problem with his selfishness is it's interfering with him being a fully devoted follower of Christ. And you want to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, don't you? You don't want to be selfish, do you? Again, this is all manipulation because this is one of those reinforcing the vision kind of sermons. This isn't about exegeting a biblical text and talking about the sin of selfishness and how all sin really is selfishness, and then placarding Christ and him crucified for our sins. No, that's not what he's doing at all. This is, this is designed to shut critics up and to basically empower all the people at New Spring to have kind of a false understanding of Scripture and what selfishness means so that when somebody says something, well, biblically critical about New Spring, they can shoot them down with this bad argument. That's what this is about. There are days that I feel like I get some stuff right. There are days that I feel like I get some things wrong. In fact, there are days I feel like I get stuff wrong more than I get stuff right. But I remember reading through the Scriptures, and I got to this one particular verse that Jesus said that's always bothered me. And I'm just going to be very transparent. There's some stuff in the Bible that I don't like. It, it bothers me. Now, there might be people here going, well, there's nothing in the Holy Scriptures that have bothered me. Well, thank you, Jesus, for being here. Maybe afterwards we could go out and you could show us how to walk on water. But the only reason you would say nothing in the Bible bothers you is because you've never read it. There's some stuff in the Bible that just bothered, and this one verse, I'm telling you this one verse, I've got it there for you on your note sheet, bothered me. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple. Stop, I like that part. And the reason I like it is because of the word whoever. Jesus said, this is just open to anybody. Anybody can be my disciple. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Okay, so there's a direct command from Jesus. You must deny yourself. 
Where is this going, Perry? Like I said, this is designed to shut critics up regarding the seeker-driven movement and vision-casting leaders and what they do at church. So now we've got a command from Jesus. You've got to deny yourself. And, and there's a particular way he's thinking that you need to be denying yourself. See, I don't like that. I don't like that because I'm selfish. And, and my selfishness kind of gets punched in the throat by my Savior when he said, if you want to follow me, you want to den- you, you got to deny yourself. See, I, I would have preferred for him to say, you must indulge yourself. You got to take care of you. You watch out for you. you. You watch out for you. You need more. You are special. You're a snowflake. You're a unicorn. You are awesome. You take care of you. See, I would have liked that, but Jesus said, you must deny themselves and take up their cross. See, I don't like that either because that looks like it might hurt. Now, when Jesus said, take up your cross, he didn't mean go get some awesome, expensive jewelry. And if you got cross jewelry, I'm not knocking on that. I think it's great. Wear your cross earrings, wear your cross necklace. But that's not what he was talking about. I had a friend one time in, in um, college. He was real hairy. I'm talking like, look like Grover off Sesame Street, hairy. And he shaved a cross in his back. And I was like, I don't think that's what that verse meant. And that's gross. And you should stop it. Um, anyway, we had to argue. Now, here's the question. He says, okay, so it didn't mean go and if you have a lot of back hair, shave a cross in your back. Granted, I believe that would be a misapplication of that passage of Scripture. The question is, is Perry Noble really rightly applying this Scripture to what he's going to apply it to? Argument, but that's not what that verse means. Cross, the cross was a symbol of, of sacrifice. The cross only became popular in Christianity when everyone who had ever, any, ever seen anyone used died away. Jesus said, you must take up your cross. In other words, if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself, and there's got to be some sacrifice involved. Now, this is another word. Yeah, so you better be denying yourself, and there's sacrifice involved. And he has a particular sacrifice that he wants folks there at New Spring to, you know, commit, you know. Don't, don't miss this. You might want to circle this on your note sheet because I didn't like this word either. <laughs> daily. Oh, come on, God. Can I get a day? Anybody ever want a day off from following Jesus? Uh, yeah, yeah, like seven people. Everybody knew I want to follow Christ all the time. No, you don't. Somebody cuts you off in line at Target. You don't want to follow Jesus. You want, you want to follow your fist into the back of their head and see, right? Daily, I'm like, God, can I, get a, can I get a day off every once in a while? God, can I, you know what, God, can I get a couple hours off on Saturday night? That's what, that's what, but, but Jesus said, no, 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 you got to do this daily and he said, if we do that, we can follow him. In other words, there's some, there's some... So if we deny ourselves daily, then we can follow Jesus. Yeah, so you can only follow him by works. Huh. This is heading in a very bad direction. Not, not very well nuanced theologically, but he's trying to make a point. He's not really trying to teach scripture. Some sacrifice and denial involved. The apostle Paul went on to write this. It's one of the most popular verses in Christianity. It's in Galatians 2.20. It's on your note sheet. He said this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. See, I don't like that. Yeah, that, so how, how do I crucify myself with Christ, Perry? What do you have in mind? I would have preferred for Paul to say, I have been massaged with Christ. I have gotten a pedicure with Christ, right? I, I don't want to be crucified with Christ because once again, that calls for sacrifice. But Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. 
Paul said, Paul said, it's not all about me. It's, it, Paul said, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, watch this, and gave himself for me. See, Jesus, when he came to earth, he didn't come to get something from us. He came to give something to us. And so when I started thinking about this, I started thinking about how can you boil Christianity down to one simple phrase? If you had to boil what it means down to be a Christian to a phrase that I think we could all rally around, not for this next season, but for the rest of our life, I want you to write this down. Um, You can fill in some blanks. Here we go. The best phrase to describe the essence of Christianity is, it's not about me. Yeah, this is getting really weird here. Yeah, that's not really the heart of Christianity. It may be the fruit of penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but he hasn't talked about any of that. Oh, boy. Yeah, let's just put it this way. The trap is set. He's about to spring it. It's not about me. Now, if you're sitting here going, I hope my husband hears this, you just missed it. You just missed it. You just missed the whole point of that. Because, see, you just made it about him. It's, it's not about me. In fact, when you get um, an, an I Heart My Church shirt, when you leave the service, right down here in the bottom will be I-N-A-M. You know what that stands for? It's not about me. I got a tattoo. Y'all remember my tattoo? I-N-A-M stands for it's not about me. I'll give you further explanation on this on my blog later on this week. Because some of y'all are like, Christians shouldn't have tattoos. And I got something for you on the blog. But I'm not going to go into it right now. It'll just be up later this week. And I'll tweet it and Instagram it and throw carrier pigeons out my window. And try to get the message out as, as quickly as I can. But this is, this is what, it's not about me. Now we have a problem with, with, with this. Do we not? Like I'm going to prove to you. you know, we're going to have a problem with this. After church today. You know why? Here's why. You get one t-shirt. You get one shirt. See, some of you mad. You're mad right now. I'm getting one for mama. Mama ain't here. Mama comes every week. Well, she picked the wrong week to miss church. I was going to get one for my cousin. Your cousin needs to, if they're not at church, you get one shirt. You think I made last year, last year on I Heart My Church Sunday, we saw people take their shirts and on, on Sunday, they had them on eBay. I'm not making this up. We got crazy people sometimes. I, I'm telling you, you get one shirt. Well, I want to get one for my friend. We'll get them one in their size and give it to them because it's not about you, right? right? I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about this message. Now, but think about this. Even if you're not a Christian, you've got to agree that that terminology, it's not about me. That phrase, that that ideology is a good ideology to live by. And when I say it's not about you, I'm not talking about you're not valuable because in Christ you are valuable. We said this before that the value of something is determined by the price that someone is willing to pay. And if Jesus gave his life for you, hello, that makes you valuable. So mention of the cross, but in the context of giving people a guilt trip, making sure they understand it's not about them. 
what's what are you building up to here, Perry? What's your point? Because you haven't really made it yet, now have you? It means God does have a plan for you. God wants to do great things for you. That's not what I'm not talking about. Your value. I'm not talking about your worth. I'm not talking about your gifting. I'm talking about when it comes to what we want as followers of Christ. We're willing to lay down our lives. How many marriage? Notice what he said. It's about what we want as followers of Christ. There's the. He's warming up to it. He's kind of sashaying in the right direction now. He's about ready to spring the trap. Marriages could have been saved if both people in the marriage said, it's not about me. I don't do marriage counseling because I'm horrible at it. About every month, somebody will call the office and go, no, 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 no. God told me to ask you. No, he didn't. Because God knows how horrible I am at marriage. This is my marriage counseling. After five minutes, this is what I always do. I need you all to be quiet. You're both selfish and you don't talk to each other. Leave. Next, you're both selfish and you don't talk to each other. Leave. Next, you're both selfish. You don't talk to each other and your mother is crazy. Leave. No, that, that's, that's pretty much, that's all I got. So if you've ever thought, I want marriage counseling from Perry, you just got it. How many business deals would have not gone wrong if, so now we're projecting into the future. What, how, wouldn't the present be so much better if, if people just bought into this it's not about me thing? Again, he's making a point. He hasn't quite made it yet. People in the business world operated by the, the fact it's not about me. Hey, let's get real. How many kids would have gone unmolested? How many women would have gone unraped? If people simply live by the philosophy of it's not about Amen. Yeah, living by a philosophy isn't going to help us because we're all sinners by nature. So like I said, this isn't really – he's not engaging in exegesis. This is manipulation. Now, it's not about me. That, that it's, either it's not about me or it's all about me. And it's all about me has not only creeped into our lives, but it's creeped into the church. Uh-oh, now here comes the point. And the church pretty much in America, in American society today, the church has pretty much said, hey, in order for you to come in here, you need to understand it's all about me. And uh, what? What are you talking about? And so in order to come in and sit next to me, you got to look like me and you got to talk like me and you got to believe like me and you got to act like me and you got to sing like me. And until you do that, then you can't come be a part of us because it's all about me. But uh, wrong. <laughs> so notice what he did there. I spent a lot of time laying out what selfishness is. And now we've now we've turned the table. So if you go to one of those churches, you know, one of those traditional churches, they use a hymnal and, you know, they have an organ and the pastor preaches law and gospel, sin and grace. Oh, and you can't be a member of the church unless you actually are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, you are selfish. How dare you? Yeah. You, see, you're not laying down your, your, your life and picking up your cross the way Jesus told you to. 
That's, I told you it was building up to something. But when we started New Spring Church 15 years ago, I want you to listen to me. We started it unapologetically to reach people far from God, to do whatever it takes. And you know what that means sometimes? It means sometimes you're going to come to church and there's going to be some things that make you feel uncomfortable and fly totally against your personal preferences. Whoa, 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 personal preferences. So notice it's personal preferences. You mean like starting off an Easter service by playing Highway to Hell? by ACDC. Yeah, see if you if you were upset about that it's because you're selfish and you you your personal preferences are getting in the way. You need to stop being so selfish. Yeah, you got to stop saying we can't do karaoke night and sing Miley Cyrus songs and do all the weird things that we do here at New Spring because it's all about personal preferences. And, you, and so the only reason you could possibly be complaining is because you are selfish. Yeah, that's what he's arguing. But it's okay. You know why? It's not about me. It, we had um, a few weeks ago, I had a, somebody come up to me and say, you know, some people were upset about John Luke and Mary Kate being on stage and us doing that interview. They were upset. We had some people in our church. They got upset and they were like, um, well, if I knew, if I thought I was coming to a talk show, I wouldn't have came to church. I want to hear the word preached. I, I, I just didn't really like that. Pastor P, what do you got to say about that? I was like, I could give a rat's rear end if they liked it or not. And here's why. Yeah. So apparently he abdicated his responsibility to preach the word and turned the church service into a talk show and there were people complaining because they hey you know i came i come to church to hear the word and you did something different than that and he says he doesn't give a rat's behind why because well perry noble he is selfless and those people who come to church with the expectation that you know we're supposed to be fed the word of god sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs like the bible says and well then you're just selfish now, this kind of begs the question, is that what Jesus meant when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him? That means, you know, giving unbelievers what they want in a Christian church service when the church gathers around the word of God to be discipled. Yeah, and things like that. The answer is no, that's not what Jesus meant at all. Perry Noble is twisting God's word. He was not ever really intending to preach God's word. This was all about giving that internal message and silencing those who would criticize what they are doing there at New Spring Church. You get the point. Moving along, we have a uh, Hillsong update that requires us to do this. Praise the Lord for all the cash I've got. Praising for my Rolls Royce and my yacht. Serving God ain't hard with a credit card. Jesus died so I could make a lot. Praise the Lord, he's made us millionaires. Wave your donations in the air. We've replaced our hymns with ATMs. And soon we'll charge a fee on every prayer. Jesus Christ was a poor man, don't you know? He should have used our accountants for his cash flow. Stop the sermon on the mount, he should have had a bank account. Two thousand years with interest. He'd be rolling in the dough. Praise the Lord, this song's out on CD. Just forty ninety-five plus GST. Hallelujah, plenty of moolah. Solid gold baubles on my Christmas tree. I've got all of heaven's riches. Thanks. 
Praise the Lord and so a seed. Anyway, uh, let me read to you from uh, Hillsong's statement, official statement by senior pastor Brian Houston, dated August 2015 regarding their famous gay couple, uh, which attend and uh, lead worship at Hillsong, New York City, which is under the direction of Carl Lentz. But uh, Brian Houston wrote this. He says, I wish to correct reports that Hillsong Church has an openly gay couple directing a choir. Uh, Well, one of them was at one point a a volunteer choir director there at Hillsong, New York City. He is no longer. But so so an openly gay couple directing a choir at our New York City campus. Hillsong's position on homosexuality and gay marriage has not changed and is consistent with Scripture. As I have stated previously, I believe the writings of Paul are clear, in which I basically say, and what are those, what what did Paul write, Uh, Brian? It would be helpful. He says, I believe that Paul, what is, his writings are clear on this subject several months ago when one of our choir directors made an unexpected public statement regarding his engagement to a man who sometimes sang in the choir. It was a complete surprise to us as well. It is my understanding that they have not been involved in an active leadership or ministry role since. That said, we still love them and acknowledge that they, like all of us, are on a journey. Yeah, you kind of get the point. So the way this was, you know, again, it's carefully written. It's like, oh, we were surprised by all of this. Okay, remember, that's August 2015. This was just last week. Well, it turns out there's a smoking gun, and the folks over at Pulpit and Penn, uh, 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 J.D. Hall and the gang, have uh, uncovered a video where um, Brian Houston did a Nightline interview which aired on November 14th, 2014. And um, so listen to what Brian Houston said in November of last year regarding this gay couple that they totally knew about. But uh, yeah, listen in. Bottom line being that you think that they're doing something wrong that you'd like them to change. Yeah, and that's, that's the challenge. I mean, we are as a come-as-you-are church. And I would hate to think there's anybody who wouldn't feel welcome in our church, unless they're predators. They're there for predatory reasons. I mean, we, we genuinely want to be a church that reaches sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And we want to be a church that reaches people of all walks of life. That's good that he wants to reach sinners and he, be- he believes he's a sinner. i got to admit, this is one of the rare times I've ever heard Brian Houston talk this way. A couple came to Hillsong. Would you want them to change? The short answer is I think all of us need to be changing. So the question was, if a gay couple came to Hillsong, would you want them to change? His answer is, oh, the short, we, we want everybody to be changing. He's evading answering the question. Because the question basically is saying, if a gay couple comes to Hillsong, are you going to tell them that they're in sin and they need to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance? That's the gist of the question. And so he kind of evades answering it directly. He says, well, we all need to change. So that's what serving Jesus does with you. We're changing. Uh, apparently, someone told me that uh, there's uh, two two gay guys singing in the choir at New York. But we've never been the kind of church who, when people join the choir, we ask them, are you heterosexual? You know, are you homosexual? Yeah, um, so he knew about this gay couple uh, the, the, in the choir in New York City back in November of 2014. 
And, um, yeah, and they appeared on the um, Survivor Del Sur uh, episodes, which started airing in September of 2014. This is November of 2014. And the the report about them that, that surfaced, you know, and and that uh, Hollywood report aired well, basically showed up in the fall of uh, 2014 as well, where they had basically said that their intention was to get married, and uh, but they wouldn't have sex until they got married, you know, because of course you know they have morals, you know. So uh, yeah, kind of interesting here in November 2014, he fully knows about this couple, and you know, yet in his uh, August 2015 statement. You know, the, the so-called announcement, you know, from this gay couple that they were going to get married was, came as a shock to them and all this kind of stuff, which kind of begs the question, um, you know, do you want impenitent sinners leading worship at church? I mean, that's a real problem. So, yeah, we've got – it's – I'm sorry, but it's as if Hillsong is going out of their way to not exactly be forthright – in you know, in addressing this issue with factual data that's transparent, that addresses what's been said in the past, when they knew it, and things like that, and they're they're feigning surprise when, well, in November of last year, Brian Houston fully knew about this couple, which then leads to this thing that came out on social media and the Twit Longer website, which allows you to write longer tweets, and you can link to it on your on your Twitter feed. From Josh Canfield, one of the uh, members of this same-sex couple that everyone's talking about. And here's what Josh Canfield writes. Notice what this shows regarding what they're being taught at Hillsong. To our friends, we're writing this post in response to so many of you who have kindly reached out. You've been wondering why we've been getting so many hateful comments on all of our social media in the past week in which some of you have been tagged or engaged. The drama that is unfolding at the moment all revolves around the fact that we have been heavily involved in our church, Hillsong, New York City. Josh has been with Hillsong for eight years in a variety of ways, choir director, vocal director, and worship team. I've been there since the beginning of our relationship over three years ago and eventually began singing in the choir and opening my apartment as the gathering place for a connect group for Hillsong members in the Broadway and theatrical communities. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> they, this gay couple is, well, at least one of the members there, has opened his apartment and you can have a small group Bible study in his home. But he's an impenitent sinner. We continue. We have been open and forthright about our relationship from the get-go. Due to our openness and very public appearance together on CBS's Survivor, we've been in conversation with Hillsong New York City's lead pastors regarding the church's non-LGBT-affirming stance. Hillsong has many campuses around the world, many in places where gay marriage is now legal. So this has been an ongoing dialogue trying to figure out how and where we, as part of the LGBT community, fit in. As a church family, we've been wading through these uncharted waters or of shifting culture and social change. So he says that they've been in conversation with the lead pastors at, at Hillsong, New York City, that would include Carl Lentz, for a long time. And they've been open about their relationship for a long time. And the folks there at Hillsong, New York City, including Carl Lentz, knowing that they were impenitent homosexuals, did have them in lead positions, positions of leadership in leading worship at Hillsong, New York City. 
Several days ago, some faceless end-of-days blogger decided to attack us and our church for allowing us to serve when we're unrepentantly embracing our sin as homosexuals. Uh, you know, that end-of-days blogger, how dare he point out the fact that they're impenitent sinners, right? But they are. Sadly, yet unsurprisingly, most super conservative news sources picked it up and then ran with it, giving this man's voice worldwide amplification it never should have had. Not to mention it worked up Christian communities around the world as many look to our church as a model of modern Christianity to be emulated. We've never been harassed in so many foreign languages before, and we live in New York City. He then continues, this has now forced our church to globally reaffirm their hard stance as a non-LGBT affirming institution and disallow any gays from being in a position of leadership within the church. It's been frustrating and a bit crushing that one crazy person could interfere so easily with the healthy and steady dialogue we've been having. But in a new world of social media and instant exposure, we were left we are left unsurprised. Thankfully, we are led by pastors who are grace-filled and committed to continuing to try to discern God's will on this matter. In order to discern God's will on this matter, all you have to do is read the Bible. God's will on this matter is clear as black and white. It's not vague. It's very clear. He then continues, all this being said, many of you ask, why are you staying somewhere that doesn't fully accept you? This leaves us with a tough decision. If we as gays pack up and leave every church we feel less than welcomed in or where we feel spiritual resistance, how will there ever be growth? So in other words, they're going to stay there in order so that Hillsong will grow into being an LGBT affirming church. That's why they're going to stay there. So the flip side of this is why would we as part of the gay community who've been primarily outcast for all of our of our lives willingly subject ourselves to more marginalization? It's It's been a lot personally uh, to work through. Many try to discredit biblical scholars and laymen alike who have shifted their stance from the non-affirming to LGBT affirming by saying the only reason they've changed their mind is because they know a gay person. This only confirms to us the personal relationship that personal relationships are transformative. This isn't difficult to accept after one looks at this through the lens of personal relationship being a foundational tenet of the Christian faith. After we inadvertently and unintentionally became public representatives for gay Christianity, we feel like we have been called and have a responsibility to continue to stand authentically in our truth, not the truth, their truth, especially within the church family that we call home, Hillsong, New York City. We are seeking the Lord. We are Christian. We are gay, and this is our journey. Yeah, it, it sounds to me like the folks over at Hillsong um, have known fully well about Josh Canfield and his relationship with his partner there at Hillsong, at Hillsong New York City. Um, well, in November, Brian Houston mentioned it on Nightline, and um, yeah, apparently they've been in dialogue with Hillsong for a long time. Long time. So when um, Hillsong says, when Brian Houston says, quote, several months ago when one of our choir directors made an unexpected public statement regarding his engagement to a man who sometimes sang in the choir, it was a complete surprise to us all as well. Um, yeah, here's the issue is that, well, according to Josh Canfield, um, you know, he and his partner have been in conversation with the leaders at Hillsong for quite a long time. 
quite a long time. And they're going to stay there. And they feel like – apparently they totally feel that attending Hillsong New York City doesn't conflict with them being you know, impenitent homosexuals. They feel no reason whatsoever – to repent of their sin and be uh, and to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they think that they're perfectly fine, you know, um, you know, and they're going to stay there in order to help Hillsong grow into a openly gay affirming um, church uh, where, uh, where homosexuals are affirmed, embraced, and are active in in front of everybody as leaders there at the. Um, at the church in New York City, and I would assume in other campuses around the world as well. So, um, I'm, hmm. after what Josh Canfield wrote and what I heard Brian Houston say in November of last year, I don't exactly feel like Brian Houston was telling the truth in his August 2015 statement regarding these um, two homosexuals at the New York City um, campus. I don't feel like he was speaking the truth at all. In fact, I feel like he was bending the truth and not speaking the truth in order to hide the truth. That's what it looks like to me. What does it look like to you? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Sermon review from a church we've never reviewed a sermon before from, and a man we've never reviewed before, too. Details on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc., but simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting, 
and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parent Dome was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to be heading to Reality Church in San Francisco, California. Give you a little bit more details as soon as we cue up our sermon review music. Let's do this right. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from Reality Church, San Francisco, California. Ruthie Kim presiding. She will be working her way through the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. The name of the sermon is The Way, the Truth, and the Life. Now, i got to admit, I haven't heard this whole thing, so, I mean, I don't have a lot of faith that we're going to get sound biblical exegesis from somebody who's preaching as a woman since God's Word forbids this. But we'll see what she does, see if she properly handles law and gospel, sin and grace, and proclaims repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Like I said, I don't know how it's going to end. This is one of those sermons where I previewed a portion of it and thought, okay, it'll make the cut. And I thought it worked with today's theme, so we'll see how this goes. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Ruthie Kim from Reality Church, San Francisco, the way, the truth, and the life. Here we go. Turn with me to John 14. And I have the privilege of really closing out our I Am statements that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. We're going to read from John 14, verse 1. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will, show, will love them and show myself to them. Let's pray. Okay, now, i got to point this out. She has read more verses in context than you're going to hear in a seeker-driven church in a year. So, I mean, she gets credit for at least actually you know, reading out a, a, a section of Scripture. Now, that being said, she chose one of the more difficult passages of Scripture to correctly exegete. And, uh, you know, if I were preaching through this, I would not try to handle the entire chapter. I would actually have to cut this up in order to do it justice. But let's see where Ruthie Kim goes. Jesus, we love you this morning. We are so glad that you are here. We are so glad, Father, that you sent an advocate in your Holy Spirit. We welcome you to come just touch our hearts this morning, open our eyes and ears to receive from you everything that you want to do. Lord, just have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. So in June, when Dave called me, Pastor Dave Lomas called me and invited me to speak, I was really excited, and I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great opportunity and um, something I would just really enjoy, and then... Except for the fact that God's Word forbids this from happening. Have you ever thought about that, Ruthie Kim? ...gave me the scripture of I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I, to be honest, I was kind of a bit bummed. (laughs) I was kind of like... Okay, and let me explain why. I grew up in the church. I have sat through a lot of sermons in my life, maybe like many of you, and I have heard this sermon so many times. I have heard this scripture said so many times, and it feels so familiar. And anytime you're asked to speak on something that you know people have heard a million times, you're like, oh, okay, like how can I bring something fresh to this? How can I bring it alive in a way that will make people like, oh, be like, oh, that's different, that's cool, that's a new revelation. Uh, Yeah, no, actually, um, it is never the job of a pastor to bring something fresh. Faithful, yes. Dig deep and and correctly exegete it. I guarantee you people go, wow, never considered that before. Not because it's a new revelation. It's because you've dug deep into what's revealed in a text. 
Interesting, you know, a little self-talk there as to what her goal was in heading off into this very difficult and nuanced text. The other thing about this scripture is that it's really restrictive. It's Jesus saying something that's, it's very restrictive. It's very narrow. He's saying, I am the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life. And anytime we're kind of faced with one of these restrictive statements from Jesus, it's like, okay, how do I feel about that? Like, is that really true? Like, Jesus, are you really the only way? And, you know, it kind of raises some questions with us. So I got off the phone and I was like, okay, how do I feel about unpacking this? And then the Lord... So you are a little queasy about Jesus's exclusive claims. I hope that's not what you meant by what you said. ...directed me through my husband. <laughs> and um, he's like, Ruthie, my word is alive. My word is alive and active and it's breathing and it changes people. And you don't have to do anything because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he takes my word and he makes it alive. And I was like, okay, God, then you want to do something? Um, let's just see what you want to do. So over the last few weeks, we've been kind of reflecting over the I am statements. We've been looking over the book of John. And there's this interesting theme that we see through the book of John of Jesus reflecting back to the Old Testament. And a lot of our speakers have mentioned this. We've looked at Moses and we've looked at the story of provision. And we've looked at I'm the bread of life and the good shepherd. And there's all this referencing back to the Old Testament. And that's really important because Jesus is doing that very intentionally. He is stirring up the people that he's talking to. He's stirring up the Jewish people. And he's like, hey, remember those stories? Remember those prophecies about the Messiah? Remember all those things that you have grown up learning about and you have learned and you've sat and you recited and you remembered? Remember that stuff because you know what? I'm here to fulfill them. I'm here to take all those prophecies, all the hopes that you have as the Jewish people, and I am the fulfillment. And that's what Jesus is. He's the fulfillment of those prophecies. He's the fulfillment of all the hope for the Jewish people and for all humanity. And what I love about Jesus is that he didn't just come and be like, hey, guys, you know, a new kingdom is coming. Heads up. Like, it's, it's on its way. Like, new things. Like, just, just look out. He was like, I am the one that's bringing that new kingdom. I am ushering it in, my presence right now. Yeah, it makes me a little nervous how you understanding the word kingdom in that sentence. Something is shifting in the atmosphere. Something is Something shifting in the atmosphere. Another bad buzz phrase. Shifting in the world, and I'm bringing a kingdom. And it's a kingdom of life, and it's a kingdom of healing and deliverance, and it's a kingdom of intimacy. As you read through the... Kingdom of intimacy. <sighs> scripture that we just read, um, the, men the word father is mentioned 15 times, just in that very, very small scripture. And throughout the book of John, it's just like father, father, father. It's just like popping out everywhere. And so when I say the kingdom of intimacy, what I mean is that Jesus, was, Jesus came to reconnect us to the father, right? Jesus came to restore something that was broken. And it wasn't like, hey, it's going to happen. It's happening right now. And guys, I just really believe that even this morning, in this moment, Jesus is like, I'm here to restore, and I'm here to connect you to the Father. This is one of these really strong themes through the book of John, connecting to Father. And the word Father is, it's an interesting word, isn't it? It's, it's really the language of relationship, and it's the language of family. And the Jewish people were waiting for a king, right? They're waiting for a king that was going to come. And this is one of the most amazing things about Jesus, about God, is he is a king. 
He is holy and he's majestic and we just kind of stand in awe and worship around him and we are his heir. She's not really exegeting this text now, is she? In that kingdom, but he's also a father, right? He's a father that is loving and attentive and generous. And it's amazing to me that Jesus, that God can be both of these things. And so when Jesus came, he's like, hey, I'm the way. Basically saying, I am the way to the Father. I am the way to reconnect to that one who fathers you and loves you and wants to be intimate with you. He makes references to making a home. So there's this invitation into, um, into this place of intimacy with Jesus. And you know what? This morning, like if this scripture is familiar to you, um, I really feel like God wants to make it alive in new ways. But if this is new for you, if you're I like, really feel like, yeah, not good words to hear somebody use while preaching. I really feel like, I really feel like God's trying to, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like, yeah, she's not really helping us understand this text now, is she? I haven't even heard this before. I haven't even heard that Jesus wants to connect me to the father of God. There is an invitation this morning. There is an invitation into this relationship with Jesus that may look different to anything that you've ever imagined. You see, the thing about God is that he only knows how to relate to us as a good father. He can't. (laughs) He only knows how to relate to us as a good father. Uh, Boy, where did you study theology again? What seminary did you go to, Ruthie Kim? The other way, he is good. He is a good father. In Psalm 145, it says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Yes, this is a good psalm, by the way. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. That is the, that is the father that we're talking about this morning. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow. Yeah, true. He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I, I agree with that. That's true about God the Father, for sure. Anger. Some of us grew up being told that God is just angry all the time and we have to appease him. That's not the God of the Bible. Yes, but that doesn't rule out the fact that God does actually have wrath and judgment as part of his character. And I would reference another passage within the Gospel of John to kind of bear that out so that we don't lose sight of this. John 3.16, we've all, we're all familiar with this passage. Let me back up in the context a little bit. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. doesn't say everybody, it just says whoever believes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And then at the end of the passage in chapter 3, it says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. So, you know, I understand that, you know, maybe you may have, uh, Ruthie Kim grew up in one of those legalistic churches that taught that your right standing before God hinged upon whether or not you can appease him by your good works. 
and you've rightly rejected that that's not, you know, that God is not about that. But see, yes, I understand that. But God loves the world that he gave his son. So whoever believes in him has eternal life. So this is calling us to repent of our sin, be forgiven. And those who persist in sin and unbelief, they remain under the wrath of God. And according to scripture, they are condemned already from the same gospel, by the way, that you're reading from. He's slow to anger and he is rich in love. It just like oozes out of him. He can't help it. He can't help but relate to you in a loving way. He can't help but look at you and just be like, boom, I love you. Like, it's just like, that's his first response. Yeah, actually, God's love is demonstrated in this, that he sent, that, you know, that Christ dies for our sins while we are yet sinners. Yeah, you're kind of grounding God's love and talking about it in a way apart from the cross, which is a dangerous thing to do, especially if there happen to be any unbelievers within, you know, the congregation. Yeah, those who persist in sin and unbelief and are impenitent remain under the wrath of God. It's not that God's love is just oozing. Yeah, God wants them to be brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. You know, I got a chance to go away last weekend, and, and it's always fun coming back to my kids. And, um, you know, you walk in the door, and my 15-month-old, he, he really loves the word wow, and it's very good for the self-esteem. Because I wake up in the morning, and he comes into my room, and he goes, wow. And I'm like... Thank you. I receive that. <laughs> um, I mean, I receive it in a good way. Not like a wow as an oh, like it's wow. You know, so I come home and, you know, and my five-year-old too, and they're just like, wow, like, mommy, we love you. And in that moment, all I have is love. Like that is the heart of a parent, right? I'm just like, we run to each other and we have a great moment. And before long, they're way past it and they just like want snacks and they want to, you know, everything. They now, want. this is an interesting point. She's trying to describe the father's love as a mother. Hmm. Yeah, this is one of the reasons I think that God has forbidden women to preach and to be pastors, uh, because we're you know that God's love is described as a father's love, not a mother's love, and there really is a difference. We continue. I just can't help it. I, I just love them, and I am a human being that is fallen and just flawed, but I can't help being a parent that just loves. And that's how Jesus responds. That's how Father responds to us. He just, he cannot help it. And I, I don't know what you came in with church today. You're just like, oh, I had a, a bad night or a bad week or, you know, maybe there's just stuff going on in your life. And I just want to remind you that the Father's immediate response to you this morning is love. He just can't help himself. The thing- yeah, you're talking about God's love apart from Christ and him crucified for our sins. We've got to be very careful there. Word father is though it is a very powerful word, isn't it, for many of us? Depending on our story, on our background, the word father can really stir up a lot of emotion. It can even stir up feelings of pain and disappointment. See, some of us hear that word and we're like, Father, yeah, like I've had such great experiences with that. Like I can relate and I just I want to wrap my arms around this idea of God as a father. And then some of us are like, that is a very uncomfortable word for me, and I'm not sure what to do with that. And I would actually prefer a master that just dictates to me, because at least then I know what I'm gonna get. Right? So many of us have experienced disappointment in our families. So many of us have experienced trauma and scarring. Like I said, I was away last weekend, and I was on my way home with one of my girlfriends. We stopped at a Mexican place. So, she, again, she's not exegeting the text. She's just telling a lot of life stories and experiences. And, and 
and her own personal understandings and opinions of things, you know? Love Mexican food. I just can't help myself. And we stopped and um, we were sitting in this just a little Mexican restaurant and a father and a son came in and they sat right next to us. And um, they were there. They arrived after us. They left before us. And it was about maybe 20 minutes. And the entire time they sat there, the only thing that was said was when the father looked at the son and said, hey, do you want chips? And the son was like, no, no, it's fine. And after they left, we kind of looked at each other, me and my friend, and it was, it was really sad because of the distance that was between this father and son. And it didn't seem like they'd had an argument. It didn't seem like they were just having a rough day. It seemed like the norm. It seemed like this is just how we kind of coexist. There's just this distance, and we talk about what's necessary, but there isn't any intimacy. And for lo- Yeah, it's a little tough to really accurately gauge the relationship between a father and, the, and a son just by somewhat overhearing one instance while they're at a restaurant on a particular day. I mean, you don't know what that day included for them. You know, maybe maybe mom died or went into the hospital or they ha- they had just had a fight or you, you, maybe they just lost a little league game. You just don't know the circumstances that they came into the restaurant under. I think that's a little uh, – well, you're judging them unfairly, don't you think? We can relate to that story maybe. Maybe that was the home we grew up in. Maybe we just didn't have one of our parents around. Maybe our parents just had no idea how to invite us into an intimate relationship with them. And so when you come to church and you hear um, this, this talk about God being a loving father and we sing songs about God loving us and just sitting at his feet and just basking in that love. And many of us are just like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I have no idea what it means to get intimate with God. Like, I, I struggle with my spouse. I struggle with my coworkers. I struggle with my own parents. How do I get intimate with a God that I can't even see? A lot of us are more comfortable with distance than we are with intimacy. But here's the thing. We have this amazing, loving father, and his invitation to us this morning is to a place of intimacy. And, you know, sometimes we're like, okay, well, how do I make that happen, right? Like, give me the step-by-step-by-step of how I get intimate with someone. And it just doesn't work that way, does it? And what's great is that all I feel like the Lord is asking of us this morning is just to be like, Jesus, that's why. All I feel like the Lord is asking of us. Why, Really? So you're getting some kind of direct revelational vibe from God? Or did you find this in the text? That's what I want. And I have no idea how to get that. And if you relate to that this morning, if you're like that, that's been my life. That's been my story. I come into worship and I see everyone else lifting their hands and just so into it. And I just feel like this, this distance, this block. This morning, I want to encourage you, the Holy Spirit, his job is to lead us into that place. In fact, that's what he loves to do. Yeah. How are you getting that from this text that the, the Holy Spirit loves to lead us into the place of intimacy? I didn't hear that when you read out John 14. Um, In the scripture that we read this morning, Jesus said, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you an advocate. This is one of the greatest things about Jesus, too, is that he does all the work. That's what amazes me. Like, he, he came. He made a way. He showed us the Father. He taught us. 
And then he said, you know, and now I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And his job is to lead you into truth. His job is to help you see that you are adopted. You are my children. And this is the kind of invitation that Jesus has for us. This is a a heart thing this morning. And if you're trying to like wrap your head around it, I just want to encourage you like, yes, think about it and process it. But also say to the Lord, even as I'm speaking this morning, say to the Lord in your heart, yeah, I need this in my heart, Jesus. Take this to my heart. Family is a heart thing. Take what exactly to my heart? You haven't made a clear exegetical point yet. So, okay, we're talking about that God being a father, and that sounds great and loving, but here we are with the scripture, and it's kind of restrictive. And it feels like, okay, God's loving, that's great, but here it is, here comes the rules, here comes the restriction, right, about that only through Jesus, and like, is that even true? Like, how do we feel about that? I, you know, I don't know about you, I, anytime someone kind of tells me this is the only way to do something... How do I feel about that? The question is, what did Jesus mean? And if he really does, if he means what he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, which would rule out every other religion on the planet or a mixture of. Yeah, you can't be a Christian Buddhist or, uh, you know, follower of Jesus in the way of Allah, you know, a, a, a Muhammad. Yeah, that's not going to work. So how do you feel about Jesus's exclusive claim? I'd like to know. I, I don't get excited about that. <laughs> I'm kind of like, you know what, really? Because I think I could show you another way, <laughs> right? Like, and many, <laughs> that's just my pride, I'm sorry. But like, so many. I'm glad you see it as prideful. Could like relate to that, right? Like, oh, you're saying this is the only way? Well, you know what, let me show you something different. And you know, San Francisco is, we are so much that culture here, right? We are so creative and so innovative, and so like everyone's doing a new thing, right? And, and that's a great thing. That's a great thing. Like we come here and we kind of want to forge our own path and we see someone designing something and we're like, that's a great app, but you know what? I could make it better and we make our own, right? Like this kind of this sense of like, I could create something really good. I can outdo you. Oh, you think that's the way to do it? That's a challenge. I could take that on. And so we have this, like, sense of, like, freedom that we want to have. Like, I remember talking to a friend that moved here to San Francisco and a few years back, and she was just telling me all these things that she wanted to do now she was in this city. I'm going to have all these relationships. I'm going to have this great career. I'm going to leave my family behind and all the restraints, all the things that people told me I was. I'm leaving that behind because I am in San Francisco, and I can do my own thing here. I can forge my own path. And you know what? Um, we just, we just like seeking out this autonomy, right? This like sense of like self and the success that we've built ourselves in. And, you know, the culture has told us that this is what freedom looks like. You know, the word autonomy is really interesting. It's two Greek words that actually means a law unto myself, a law unto myself. You know, and that creativity and that innovation, that's a good thing. But the idea that it just comes without restraint without restriction is a lie. This idea that we can be satisfied by our own self-rule, that we don't need anyone else and we don't really need God, that we can kind of just forge ahead and make it happen. Some of us have prided ourselves on just pushing through, right? Everything's against me in life. People told me I couldn't do it, but I'm going to make a way. And like, we just kind of blink us on and we just, we just go. And we think that we can just be by ourselves. We don't need 
to go through Jesus to get to the Father. We can make our own way. And you know what? Many of us don't sit in church thinking this stuff. It's so subtle how it comes into our life. It feels like Jesus is just trying to limit our creativity. So is it sinful to have autonomy apart from Christ and God? I would say so. Scripture, God commands and says, you shall have no other God before me. The autonomous person has set himself up as his own God and has rebelled against God. So that's a sin. Will you call it sin and call them to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their idolatry? It's trying to restrict us. Really? Can it only be through the Father? What about if through Jesus? Can, what about if I just do this and include this? And like, is it really all about Jesus? Well, in Genesis 2, we can look back at the garden and we can see what real freedom is. We can look back and see how it was when God first created us. We see God creating humans, male and female. And so he, he makes Adam, right? He makes a guy and, and he's like, you know what? Let's, let's make them in our image. And, you know, it's kind of cool as a parent to see yourself in your kids. I mean, most of the time, not always. <laughs> there are some things you're like, oh, but most of the time, it's really sweet to kind of look at your kids and be like, oh, I think he has my eyes. And that's kind of my laugh. And, and I can just imagine God as a father creating humans and being like, hey, let's make them so they look like us. Like, let's make them so that they reflect us. There's something of us that is on there. So he makes Adam. And then what happens? Adam's lonely. Adam has a need. And you know, this is so cool. God's like, oh, I'm attentive to your needs. Like, I know what's going on with you. So he creates Eve, right? And they're in the garden, and they're walking with God, and they have this relationship that is perfect. There's just this intimacy. They're naked, and they're unashamed. Guys, that is what God intended for us. There's this sense with God where we are vulnerable and intimate, and we are unashamed. Because you know what? God is not into shaming us. Our Father is not into shaming us. And if you grew up... In a yeah, actually, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame, Scripture says. So God will shame those who persist in sin and unbelief and autonomy from him, if you know what I mean. <sighs> yeah, we're not really exegeting the text now, are we? No, we haven't done that yet. I don't think she's going to get to it. Family or in a circumstances where you felt shame, let me just tell you that is not from God. That is not his heart for us. Really, uh, Jesus says that the, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and unbelief, that might cause you to feel shame for your sin, sorrow, and contrition. Hmm. But then, of course, that freedom, that real freedom was hijacked by sin. The enemy came in and deceived us into thinking that somehow there was another way, that we didn't need this intimacy with God, that we could just forge our own path. We're designed and created to be one with God. And we are destined to have an intimate, life-giving, and powerful relationship with him. There is a We are destined to have a life-giving, powerful relationship with him. Yeah, I, I don't know where she's getting that from. In this city that says that if you're a Christian, you're boring and uncreative. And let me tell you that you are your most creative. You are your most innovative and your most powerful in your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
what does that even mean? Am I most creative when in my in my relationship? What does that even mean? I mean, some people are creative and they are gifted in that department, and other people are gifted in conforming. And I thank God for the different varieties of gifts that people have. That is exactly who you were designed to be. It's like looking back to the garden and being like, what is perfection? Like, how can I get in touch with everything I'm supposed to be, the very core of my creativity and my innovation and ideas? How do- yeah. <laughs> it's as if, oh man, she's, it's as if creative, creativity is somehow a metaphor for the, your identity, how you would be without sin. And, oh man, this is a train wreck. Get in touch with that, Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he said. And so don't feel that oppression in San Francisco of like, oh, I don't know whether I'm ever going to be, I'm ever going to be. You will be everything you are supposed to be in your relationship with Jesus Christ. He made you. He designed you. He put every piece together. He knows you. So we are our most free in Jesus. This idea that you know, we're free without restraint. It's, it's a lie from the enemy. When you look at the garden, we see they were in this exclusive, intimate partnership with God, and they were free. They were free, and they were beautiful. Some of us think that when we have this restraint from God, when Jesus says, like, I'm the only way, that somehow it's there to rob us. But it's not. Jesus is a giver, and he's not a taker. He's a... <laughs> Lots of uh, fine words about Jesus. She has a very high opinion of him, I'm sure, but she's not helping us correctly understand this text in any kind of a meaningful way. It's a blessing and not a curse. Here's the thing, though, guys. The devil is still doing what he did in the garden. The devil is still telling us that we can forge our own way, we can live free of restraints, we don't need other people, we don't need God, we can do it ourselves, and it comes in really subtle ways into our life. Jesus said in John 8, he's talking to the crowd, and this is what he says. He says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Yeah, that's right. The devil's a liar. Yeah, that's right. And uh, they're under the power of the devil. Are you going to flesh out what's going on in that text? Because you're not doing so good on the uh, John 14 text. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This theme of father is heavy in the book of John. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in one moment, Jesus is talking about his perfect, loving, heavenly father. And then the next, he's referring to another father. He's referring to the father of lies. And I think what he's doing, he's contrasting for us. And he's saying, there are two fathers at work here. And we have the choice to choose who we want to build our life on. What do we want to believe? Yeah, no, that's not what he's saying at all. Because in John 6, he says, no one can come to the father. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And the Greek word helkuo there means it's, you're being drug because you're not, you ain't moving on your own. Um, wow, this is not good at all. Who gives us the access to truth? 
You know, all of us think that we're building our lives on truth. You know, especially if we're, we're Christ followers here this morning, and we're like, you know what, I, I know God, I know Jesus, like truth, yeah, that's my foundation, I stand on it, I believe the Bible. But I just want to um, share something from my life, just as uh, a little example of, I think... Uh, another thing from your life you want to share with us, really. You, will it help us understand John 14? Because so far, none of your personal anecdotes have helped us understand John 14 any clearer happens. I, I've had two kids. Like I said, my last, my, my youngest Phoenix, um, he came in, I, I delivered him 10 pounds, five ounces. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, I do because I deserve it. It was, <laughs> it was grueling. Ah, oh, the sympathy. Um, but yeah, he was a big baby. And let me tell you, that's like delivering a three month old, like legitimately. Okay. So afterwards, I was, my body was a mess. Like, I could barely walk. I mean, not just like right after delivery, but like weeks. Okay, I <laughs> Too much information. I don't want to hear about this. I, my hips were all off. Like, it was so uncomfortable. Like, people would look at me and be like, oh, wow, what's, what's going on? And I'm like, you know what? Three month old. And, you know, it's just like everything was, everything was out of whack. And, and finally, I was like, I gotta go see a chiropractor. So I went to go see a chiropractor, and things were definitely messed up. But I worked with her for a bunch of months, and she helped me kind of get back to this really strong place. I still see a chiropractor periodically, and, you know, sometimes my back sore, maybe many of you do, you do, and you can relate to that, and, and I go in, and she adjusts me, and we work on stuff, and I get up, and I'm like, gosh, this feels really weird, and she's like, yeah, because now you're straight, and I'm like, really, this is, this is what straight feels like? This is, this is like what it should be, and she's like, yeah, she's like, crooked was normal for you, like you didn't even know that you were crooked. And, you know, this is so much what it's like in our Christian life. Like, when there's major things going on, like, us and those around us can be like, whoa, like, are you okay? Like, it just seems like you're really struggling with this, with God or with your prayer life or with whatever. But so often it's the little things. It's the subtle things that we're not even aware of. And then we get in worship and we get in the presence of Jesus. And we're like, whoa, like, have I been kind of off in that? Have I not been believing truth? You know, many of us would be aware of the fact that, you know, we probably are aware of some truth now that we weren't six months ago, right? Like God spoke to us through a sermon or through our devotional, or we just had this revelation and we're like, wow, six months later, I'm, I'm actually a different person. I, I know truth about God and I know truth about myself more than I did a few months ago, maybe more than yesterday, maybe in worship today, God was speaking to you. And this is what the Christian life is like. It's like we're growing, we're being transformed, we're changing, So what do these subtle little ways that we're kind of off in our Christian life, in our relationship with God, what do they look like? Well, they look like comparison and envy and jealousy. We look at someone, we're like, wow, I see the favor on your life. Man, you just succeed at everything, don't you? You're beautiful. Yeah, yeah now we're talking about sins of coveting. Um, are you going to call them out and call it sin and call them to repent and to trust Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins? You have a great job, a great family. And beneath all of that kind of junk that we all deal with is this lie that somehow that person is more loved than you are. That somehow... 
God wants to bless that person and not bless you. Now, most of us aren't walking around thinking, gosh, God, you love that person more than me. But that's really the lie that's at the root of those feelings and those behaviors that we have. We embrace a workaholic lifestyle because we are so afraid that if we don't succeed, if we don't make a ton of money, if we don't make it, there will be nothing. So we work and we work and we work and we work and we drive ourselves into the ground. And what's rooted beneath that behavior is this lie that, you know what? I have to make it myself because God's not going to come through because you know what? My dad never came through. My mom never came through. My family never came through. If I don't do it myself, it won't happen. Instead of thinking, you know what? I have a loving heavenly father who wants so much good stuff for me and I can work hard but I don't need to destroy myself doing it. We refuse to step into everything that God has called us to because of insecurity and fear. We have these dreams and we have these visions and we want to be free in worship and we want to dance before the Lord and we want to go and build a business and we want to be a... This sounds like a Christianity that where you're at sea without a rudder. I mean, seriously. We do all these things, but we feel like I can't do those things. I can't fully embrace those things because I'm so afraid that I'm going to fail. Instead of being like, Lord, you're calling me into these things and I can trust you to lead me. We're driven by obsession, addiction, compulsion, control issues, and perfection because we don't know that we're loved by Jesus. We don't know that we're loved by God as a father deep in our spirit. See, the root of our behaviors are lies that we believe about God and about ourselves. Yeah, actually, the root of our behavior is a corrupted, sinful nature, which we receive from Adam and Eve as a result of their fall into sin. Does she understand the doctrine of original sin? See Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 3, if you're confused on this. Here's the cool part, the Holy Spirit. This morning, God wants to free us from this stuff. And again, he's done all the work. And we can say, oh, Lord, I see this in my life. I see these lies. I feel like I'm sitting in like Holy Spirit chiropractor office. And I'm like, oh, I am kind of off. I feel kind of funky. And I don't know how to straighten myself up. You know what? We didn't know how to save ourselves from sin. But Jesus came and died on a cross and he made a way. We don't know how to. Yeah, you mentioned Jesus dying on the cross, but you said he made a way. Can you explain what that means and why it's important that Jesus died on the cross? ourselves this morning in the spirit, but the Holy Spirit comes and he touches our heart and he rearranges us and he sets us free. This morning, as we were doing prayer at the beginning, I just felt like the Lord wanted us to know that the revelation of his love as a Uh, So she's receiving direct revelation from God now. The Lord just wanted us to know she felt this. Uh Uh-huh. Right. For us, when we have a revelation, I don't just mean like, oh yeah, I heard that. I mean like a revelation, like it goes somewhere deep inside. That's the thing that will set you free. And there's some people here today and you are bound by addiction and compulsion. And you're like, I don't know what else to try. Well, I would encourage you to try Jesus. Uh, Try Jesus. How do you try Jesus? The call of the gospel is to repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and believe, not try. Jesus is not some therapy that you try to, in order to make your life better and, or more well-adjusted. 
revelation of his love, it will literally shift you inside. It will change something. It will transform something. Man, that is good. And I love Jesus. He is so good to us. There is no life in deception, in those lies. There's no life in that. You know, two years ago, I was going through a pretty rough time, and I was dealing with some major comparison stuff in my life. I was looking... Another life story from the life of Ruthie Kim. The people's lives and families, and I was like, you know, poor old me, and like, kind of really settling into that place of comparison, feeling unfavored, feeling unseen by the Lord. And one night, I had a dream, and in the dream, I was sitting at a table, and the Lord was sitting with me, and he said... The devil has nothing for you. And I woke up from that dream, and it was like a revelation to my heart. And I know it sounds so basic. As Christians, we're like, I know, I don't want anything to do with the devil. But he has nothing for you. The comparison, the jealousy, the envy, the addiction, the stuff that drives us. These are sins. And he's got nothing good for you. But Jesus has everything. He is the fulfillment of our hopes and our dreams. He's the one that can free us. He's the one that can set us free. You know, we are bent kind of towards death, right? We kind of have this bent. Kind of. (laughs) We're born dead in trespasses and sins. Again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We're born into sin and we're kind of, we're kind of bent towards. And what I mean by that is like we're kind of in our humanity bent towards hope, hopelessness and sadness and just like feeling rejected. And No, it's dead in trespasses and sins, not just hopelessness. You know, loneliness. And, and we enter into a relationship with Jesus and we spend a lifetime of being transformed, a lifetime of learning what it means to abide with the Father. And if you're sitting here and you're being like, okay, like I got to get this goal by the end of the year, I'm going to get this thing about being the beloved of God. It's going to be a lifetime and maybe into eternity of just knowing that we are so beloved, that that part of us just shifts towards this place of like, okay, I'm, I'm not abandoned. I'm not left as an orphan. I'm not unseen. I'm not unloved. That there is someone that loves me so much. He's that father that's so quick to just reach out and touch us with his love. Um, About 12 years ago, a friend of mine gave me a book. Another personal story. We're hearing a lot about Ruthie Kim, not so much about Jesus. And um, the book is called The Secret Garden. It's a British book. And um, I remember I was traveling through Asia at the time, and she gave me this gift before, before I left. And I opened it up while I was, I was in Thailand, and I was like, okay. I mean, I thought this was like a children's book, but that's cool. Um, but I knew enough about my friend that she was sensitive to the Lord, and she'd given me this book for a reason. And I began to read this book, and I can honestly say it has really um, helped me in my Christian life. It's about this young girl. Her name is Mary. She's 10. She's born to parents that don't want her. And she's left with nannies and caregivers. And it's just very obvious. They don't love her. They don't care for her. And um, eventually her parents die from cholera. I believe they were living in India at the time. And, And she's found alive in the home. Everyone else is dead. But she's found alive, but she's alone. 
And she's sent back to England to go live with her uncle, an uncle that she doesn't really know very well. And she's bored and she's kind of moping around the house. And, and one day, one of the people that works at the house tells her about this garden and that the uncle had a wife who had passed away and that she used to care for this garden. But after she passed away, the uncle locked this garden. It's like a walled garden. He locked the garden and he buried the key. And so Mary gets really curious and she's like, hi, I wonder, um, you know, I wonder what this garden looks like. I wonder what's going on. And I'm just going to read you a little excerpt from the book. It says, what was this under her hands, which was square and made of iron and which her finger found a hole in? It was the lock of the door, which had been closed 10 years. And she put her hand in her pocket, drew out the key and found it fitted the keyhole. She put the key in and turned it. It took two hands to turn it, but it did turn. And then she took a long breath and she looked behind her up the long walk to see if anyone was coming. No one was coming. No one ever did, it seemed. And she took another long breath because she could not help it. And she held back the swinging curtain of ivy and pushed back the door that opened slowly, slowly. Then she slipped through it and shut it behind her and stood with her back against it, looking about her and breathing quite fast with excitement and wonder and delight. She was standing inside the secret garden. And what happens is she enters into this garden and it's dead. Like it looks completely dead. Like it's winter, everything's kind of covered. There's not really life. It's not this glorious blooming garden. It's kind of like, wow, no one has kept this garden for 10 years. And I was reading this book and the Lord started to speak to me about my heart. He's like, Ruthie, that's Yeah, there we go. God speaking to her through the book, The Secret Garden, right. Your heart. There are places in there that feel walled and places in there that have been locked up and you've buried the key and you don't even want to look at them. And when you happen to glance at them, it just feels dead. It feels like it's just gone, like there's nothing there. And what's beautiful about this story is the whole book is really about her nurturing this garden back to life. And it turns out that, you know, it's kind of a representation of like her own heart and the grief and the loss of being an orphan. And she brings it to life. And she sees things grow that she thought she was, were dead. Guys, this is, this is like our hearts. Um, there are places in our lives, we look at them and we're just like, that will never resurrect. That was a dream. Oh, that, oh, yeah, because God's all about resurrecting dead dreams, right? Relationship. That was something that I longed for, something that I hoped for, and it is gone. And it's almost like our hearts are covered in tombs with gravestones and we kind of walk around and some of us have years of them, right? We have decades of, whoa, like that was a relationship that failed and that was a dream that I had. That was a business I wanted to start, but everyone told me I'd never succeed and so I let it go. That was my dream for a family, but it just seems like it's never going to happen. So let's bury that one. And like, we just move through life with these places of death in our heart and we feel like, how am I ever going to come alive? How am I ever going to experience God? Because I feel so much death. And And none of this has anything to do with John 14. We gradually kind of get smaller and smaller and smaller. And we just kind of self-protect. You know what? God is a God of resurrection. Jesus walked out. So Jesus walked out of the garden. So God wants to resurrect your dead relationships. Clueless. 
to him. And I just feel this morning really strong. Yeah, you just feel. You need to knock off your feelings. Your feelings are totally leading you astray, and you're leading other people astray by preaching your feelings. This has nothing to do with what Jesus said in John 14 that Jesus wants to say to you, wherever your tombs are, wherever the things are that you feel like you will never get back, I don't know how it's going to look, but Jesus is doing something. Jesus is doing something. He took Lazarus out of that, out of that tomb and they unwrapped those grave clothes and there's something here today for you if you're like, oh, I just feel death and I feel loss and I feel grief and I feel disappointment. Some of us are just like weighed down by disappointment. It's like one thing after another thing. It's a failed relationship. It's a job loss. It's a housing situation that fell through. It's a financial crisis. We're in debt and we don't know how to get out. This is the stuff that Jesus cares about. When he came and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, it wasn't just for eternity. It wasn't just like, okay, one day things will be good, but for now, just hold on. It's going to be okay. That's not the Jesus that we know and we love. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm beginning to think your Jesus is an idol, not the Jesus that uh, is revealed for us in Scripture. Jesus is into transformation. Jesus is in to coming and letting you know the Father loves you. The Father loves you with your debt, with your tombstones, with your fears, your anxiety. Jesus loves you with your addictions. He's just crazy about you, but he loves you so much he wants to free you. He wants to do something. There's an invitation this morning. If you don't know Jesus today, I just want to encourage you that he loves you. Yeah, again, you're not preaching Christ's love you know, through and with the cross. Uh, you're just preaching some kind of abstract, intimate love kind of thing here, and it's different. He loves you. I want to invite you to come forward for prayer as we close today because you know what? I just, I really sense that there's some people here. That yeah, she's really sensing. She's sensitive. She gets direct revelation, you know. She's holier than you are. One here, and you've been thinking about it for a while, and you're just wondering if this Jesus thing is for you. I just want you to come forward and get some prayer. If you're sitting here today and you're like, oh, like, man, I resonate with that distance thing. I don't know how to do that intimacy thing with Jesus. Come forward and get prayer. Maybe for some of you, it's going to be coming and kneeling, taking communion and responding. If you're bound by addiction today and you're like, I cannot get free and I have tried everything, the love of Jesus can set you free and it might have... Yeah, no, she's not preaching law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. God just loves you and he wants to come and set you free from addiction. Yeah, that's not preaching repentance. Instantly, or it might be a process. But take a first step today and respond and say, yes, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit. I need you to come and free me. Let's take a moment and just close in prayer. Yeah, done. Uh, sorry, Ruthie Kim, won't be praying with you. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty awful. That was uh, therapy, Jesus. That wasn't the dying on the cross, bleeding and you know, and suffering for your sins, Jesus, who calls you to repent and to be forgiven. That's the uh, oozing with intimate love, Jesus, who really wants to help you as your therapist and chiropractor, I think. <sighs> wow. Yeah, that was just miserable. What did you think? 
Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>